10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this scripture to us, that we would understand what you're trying to tell us through it, and that uh, we would be changed and see Jesus more clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been preaching a sermon series these first three weeks of January about what it looks like for us uh, to grow as Christians and express fruitfulness, the results of the gospel, how it should be changing our lives. And we, we've talked about growing in grace, our relationship individually with God. We've talked about fellowship and service, how we as the body of Christ together relate to each other. And this morning we're going to talk about evangelism and missions, how we should relate to those outside the church. Now, evangelism and missions can be a confusing topic, and it can even be controversial. In the late 18th century, a group of ministers, Baptist ministers, met together to spend time. Uh, and as they were sitting around smoking pipes and uh, making pleasant conversation, uh, an older minister from the community came into the room, and, and uh, one witness has suggested that maybe he was a little bit eccentric and, and maybe enjoyed starting drama a little bit too much. But he came into the room and he said, I think that the youngest two ministers here should propose a topic of discussion. One of the younger ministers there was a man named William Carey, and the topic for discussion he proposed was whether churches really had an obligation to send missionaries to other countries. And this apparently offended this older minister, and although this may have been embellished with time, we are told that he said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine either. Um, this story is often told in the modern missions movement as an example of just, you know, horrible resistance to this idea of going to other countries and sharing the gospel. But it's probably worth remembering this was a new idea at the time. These young ministers like William Carey were suggesting that line items be added to the budgets of churches to help people go to other countries. And this was kind of a weird thing to do if you're not used to it. Pack up, leave, head to another country. 
You know, sometimes older ministers don't take it so well when younger ministers show up and say they need to change the way things need to be done. And I think this kind of tension captures a tension we can often feel when it comes to the topic of evangelism and missions. You know, maybe many of us would like to agree with that older minister. Um, even if he was a bit grumpy, couldn't God just do it without my help? Maybe that would be nicer, you know? When I sh- feel like I should share my faith with my friends, sometimes I sound like a used car salesman. It feels uncomfortable in a multicultural world to talk about my faith in a way that uh, feels like I'm saying other religions are wrong. Not a popular thing to say. Well, I don't think I'm going to answer all your questions here today, but I do want to take some time looking at the Bible. Why would we think that, that sharing our faith and even sending missionaries places is something that we should do based on the Bible? And I want to share at least a couple practical, uh, practical things to think about that can help us get started. We're going to see three points today. Point number one, Jesus sends us on a mission. Jesus sends us on a mission. Point number two, we're going to ask, what does this look like for you? What does it mean for you to be sent on a mission? And number three, our mission reflects God's heart for the lost. So we'll end by reflecting on God's heart for the lost. Okay, so the first point, Jesus sends us on a mission. I want to start this point by making an observation. The witness of the church starts simply by being God's people. Uh, In the first place, we are to be a witness just by following God's commands. This was something already set down in Deuteronomy 4, starting at verse 5. Moses said, Look, I've taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in this land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them. For this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. When they hear about all these statutes, they will say, This great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to it, as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire law I set before you today? You hear what Moses is saying here. The nations are going to come and see how the Israelites live their lives. And in doing so, they'll see the wisdom of God's law, and then they'll want to know about God. God didn't give the law just for the benefit of his people, but it was so that they might be a witness to the nations around them about who God was. Well, if you know the story of the Old Testament, you'll know that this plan didn't really work out in a straightforward way. Why not? Because the people kept refusing to follow the law. Uh, Nevertheless, God didn't give up on Israel. After judging them by exiling them from the land, he forgave them and brought them back. In the book of Isaiah, he tells them that this was so that they might be a witness to the nations. Now, not only about the wisdom of God's law, but also about God's grace and miraculous power in preserving them through exile and bringing them back to the land. This is an expectation that Jesus keeps up as well. We saw in the Sermon on the Mount that he says that his followers are supposed to be a city on a hill. They're to let their light shine so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Thus, the whole existence of the church is to be a witness to God. We are supposed to be a community that repents 
of our sin that lives under the authority of God's law and so testifies to the wisdom of God's way of doing things. And we're supposed to be a community that gives thanks and marvels at the wondrous grace we have experienced from God. I think that's an important point to make at the beginning, just to make it clear that we shouldn't be playing off evangelism over against other things that the church does. Our witness is supposed to grow out of our identity as God's people, created by His grace and under the authority of His law. And so, witness, our evangelisms and missions should really flow out of the things that we've talked about in the previous two sermons, growing in grace and our fellowship in serving one another. So, the church's witness starts simply by striving to be faithful to our calling as God's people. But having said that, one of the things that really stands out, if you look at the community of disciples Jesus founded, is an emphasis on hitting the road to spread the good news. This is true even before his crucifixion. And Jesus himself had no fixed home. During his ministry, he traveled from place to place, teaching and preaching. And the gospel writers tell us about how Jesus first sent out his 12 disciples into the villages of Galilee, and later a group of 72 disciples throughout all of Judah and Galilee announcing that the kingdom of God had arrived and preaching a gospel of repentance. Jesus gives instructions to them to take no money with them, but to rely on whoever would receive them and provide for them. And when they returned, Jesus describes this mission in grand apocalyptic terms. We heard in our scripture reading, For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And when they come back, announcing the spiritual power they've been given to cast out demons, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. This mission to testify to who Jesus was and to spread his teaching, it's a really big deal. Jesus treats it like his preliminary cosmic defeat of Satan that anticipates his own victory at the cross. And then after Jesus dies and rises again, the risen Christ tells his disciples they will receive power from the Holy Spirit, that they would be his witnesses, not just in Judea, but also in Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. And we know of, of Peter and Paul and other people besides as well who weren't even apostles like Barnabas and Mark who, who traveled to every corner of the world they could get to. They made it all the way to Rome. We're not sure if Paul ever made it to Spain, but we know he was planning to go there. Church tradition says that Thomas made it all the way to India and founded the community of Christians there now. And that's how it was in early Christianity. You had this whole slew of teachers and prophets and apostles roaming around from town to town. That might be why so many of the New Testament letters have instructions to figure out if, if somebody's genuine or not, if you can really trust them or if they're a scam artist. Another way to say this is that the church has a mission. And mission itself comes from the Latin word meaning to send. Sending is central to the story of the Bible, isn't it? God the Father sent His Son to save us. He sent the Spirit to testify to the truth of the gospel in our hearts. And by His Spirit, He sends us with a message for the world. 
And then there's the word gospel. What does gospel mean? It just means good news. It draws from this imagery of a great battle that's been won, of a king triumphant to save his people, and the messengers who run with joy in every footstep to tell the world about it. The church has a mission. The church has a gospel, a story to tell the world. And that means that as important as our personal relationship with God is, and our fellowship with other believers, we can't afford to become focused only on those so that we become an insular, closed community. I think sometimes we need some of the attitudes of children here. Have you ever talked to a child that was excited about something? Um, One of the things I really enjoyed about working in children's ministry is that I heard a lot of the stories and news about anything that was happening. Do you want to know who's pregnant before anybody else? You should work in children's ministry because as soon as those kids know they're getting a little brother and sister, they are ready to share with the whole class. We're supposed to have some of that excitement and enthusiasm about this message that's been given to us that we just sort of can't wait to tell people. Okay, so that's the first point. Jesus sends us on a mission. But what does that actually look like? What does that mean for you? I think we should start with a point that's actually kind of obvious if you stop and think about it for a second. Not everybody in the early church was traveling around and preaching the gospel. Uh, In fact, it must have been a pretty small minority of the whole. I mean, Jesus certainly had a lot more than just 72 disciples to send out, right? Um, And when we read in the book of Acts about Paul and Barnabas and Mark, we shouldn't forget about other people like Simeon, Lucius, and Menaean, who set them apart with prayer and fasting and send them off at the Holy Spirit's command. The Holy Spirit chooses them for their missionary journey out of the midst of a congregation who sends them. And then on the other end as well, the gospel message can't be preached unless someone receives the preachers. It's really interesting. Jesus says, if if people just oppose you and persecute you, you move on. Um, And this is actually something we see in the first book of church order we have, the Didache. It talks about, you know, you have bishops and deacons, and they're chosen locally in the community, and then you have Uh, teachers and prophets and apostles who sort of roll into town from somewhere else, and they need to be received by the church, provided that they're not scam artists. You need to be real careful about this. So you have at both ends, you have sending and receiving, you have a community of local people who basically stay put, and they authenticate the ministry of the people who are sent. By the way, this is one of the reasons, just as a side note in Presbyterianism, why we insist on congregational votes for church leaders. We're going to have one at our meeting right after this. We don't just have a central office that sends you the guy who's going to be in charge. You have to vote. Why? Because the Bible says that the ministry of these teachers and leaders is authenticated by the Holy Spirit speaking through a local community. Okay, but if only a small fraction of the community is actually packing their bags and leaving town, what does that mean for the rest of us? Well, there's still a very important sense in which everybody in the church is a missionary, a sent one. 
What do I mean by that? Well, in John 17, 18, Jesus says, as speaking to the Father, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And if you look at the context, Jesus isn't just praying for the apostles here. He's praying for every single person that the Father has given to him. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This is one of those crazy, mysterious, loaded phrases you find in the Gospel of John, isn't it? Uh, In some way, through our union with Christ, all of Jesus' disciples are sent like the Father sends the Son? Wow. We get to participate in some small way in the intertrinitarian plan of salvation, the mission that the Son of God undertook in eternity past. Whoa. Blows your mind. And we see echoes of this same idea in the book of Acts. In Acts 8, we hear about a persecution that scatters the fledgling church. Everyone except for the apostles leaves Jerusalem, we're told. And the passage goes on to say, those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. And the word for preaching specifically means gospel preaching here. So just as all Christians are sent by Jesus into the world, we're also on a mission. And we may all be called upon to preach the gospel at some point. And and here I want to get into the text we often talk about for evangelism, 1 Peter 3.15, which is an instruction given to all of us by Peter. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's a couple of things to notice about this passage. Um, First of all, it comes in the wider context of Peter urging Christians to pursue good works so that those who persecute the church don't have any good reason for doing so. Um, So we're not separating out words from deeds here. Um, Both are very important to our witness. Also, there's something more organic about the way this witness works out than sometimes happens um, when we witness. You know, this is not some awkwardly inserted box testimony about who Jesus is. Rather, the non-Christian notices that the Christian has a lot of hope. Something interesting to think about there, the the hopeful expectation of God's future goodness is supposed to make our lives look different. People are supposed to look at us and be like, wow, you've got a lot of hope. Why is that? I've got questions about that. When they do, we're supposed to be ready to give a defense. Um, And here, this is referring to a reasonable argument. Don't think this means we all have to be genius philosophers, although I know we're blessed to have a couple of those in our congregation. But we don't all have to be. Um, We we certainly don't have to pretend we have all the answers. Um, Other Bible passages say that God specifically chose not to fill the church with the wisest of people as the church counts wisdom. But we do need to understand some of the reasons behind why we believe the gospel is true and why that gives us hope in the world. When unbelievers get curious... We should be ready to share that. In the next verse, Peter continues, Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience. It's almost like Peter knows how it can go when we start talking about religion sometimes, doesn't it? We can get defensive and boisterous instead of gentle and meek. We can become dismissive and mocking instead of reverence 
Side note here, be careful if you get your models for evangelism from the internet. It's not to say there's not a lot of great content out there that can help you defend your faith, um, but I've noticed there's also a lot of stuff online that's ostensibly from Christians defending the faith that relies heavily on mocking and belittling of non-Christians. We have to be careful here. It's easy for us for such discussions to become about us proving our intelligence or maybe dealing badly with anxiety about our own doubts rather than sticking to the point, which is the hope revealed in the gospel message itself. Sharing this gospel is ultimately about the power of the Holy Spirit, not convincing words and human wisdom. It's not about dunking on non-Christians. Here we should remember everything the book of Proverbs has to say, that mockery is actually a sign of foolishness. So just avoid any of that stuff that sounds like mocking to you. Um, and it's ultimately, again, not about our intelligence. Jesus actually says, don't be afraid about what we'll say, but trust the Holy Spirit to work through our words. Um, when I was a, a student studying, a college student studying abroad in Edinburgh, we had uh, a, a ministry where we'd do this uh, witness, we'd, uh, witnessing. We'd, we'd uh, go ahead and make hot chocolate around 9 p.m. on a Friday, and around 10 p.m. we'd uh, get a, set up a table outside the university bar. That was the least cool bar, but it was the cheapest, so students would start drinking there, and then they'd come out with about having a, had about one or two drinks and a little more openness to talk about spiritual things. We'd offer them some hot chocolate and say, hey, if you want to have a conversation, we can have a conversation. Um, and one of the memory, memories that really stuck with me is of a time when a couple of physics students totally demolished my attempt to make an argument for the existence of God based on the argument from causation. And, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you have a couple of choices. You can either be like, wow, you know, I don't know how to respond to that objection. You made a good point. I'll think about it. Or you can sort of try to uh, make something up and cover over the fact that you've been caught out. But, you know, what's really the better witness to Christ? You know, your attempt to sort of cover over the fact that maybe you don't know everything, or a secureness to be like, well, you know what? Like, I don't actually know, and that's okay, because Jesus saves people who don't know everything. I think we need to have a certain amount of confidence that the Holy Spirit can be at work even if we don't have all of the answers in these situations. One other thing here, the New Testament authors seem to assume that Christians will actually spend a lot of time with people outside the church. You know, Peter's assuming that here. You have to be pretty close to unbelievers for them to notice the hope in your life. Think about that. And that means we should seek to build relationships and friendships with people just in our community, people that we meet in our daily callings. And these ought to be real relationships, not just that we have conversion as an ulterior motive, but that we love God's image bearers wherever we find them. And this might look different depending on our different callings in the world. One of the important insights of the Reformation was that God's given us all these diverse callings to pursue, and that's a good thing. It's not like being a pastor or being a missionary is some super spiritual thing on a pedestal. 
and everything else is just kind of garbage. No, God's called us to reflect His glory into every corner of creation. He's gifted people to be construction workers and cleaners and counselors and nurses and lawyers and university students, and pursuing those gifts glorifies God. Although some people keep telling me that you can't pursue being a student for your whole life and that you need to graduate at some point. I'm not sure about that. Our witness follows along with our callings. When we seek to work well, when we uphold fairness and justice in our workplaces, when we befriend others and encourage others in the workplace, that's part of our witness. And it can create an openness to share the gospel message among our peers. So let me get back to the question of this point. What does this look like for you? Perhaps some of you do feel a call to spend all of your time teaching the gospel or traveling to somewhere where nobody's heard it before. If that's so, let me encourage you to explore that calling, and uh, please get in touch with uh, me or another pastor. We'd love to talk to you about that. If that's not you, though, and it won't be most of you, and that's okay, if that's not you, think about the non-Christians you know in your lives. Think about the places where you interface with the world outside the church. Is there a relationship that God may be calling you to pursue more? Are there ways that you can show hospitality to those around you in your community? And one final question for this point, uh, do you even like people who are not Christians? That might be an uncomfortable question, um, but uh, I think we need to ask ourselves, like, do you feel like you're only able to relate to people that share your faith, or are you actually able to enjoy human beings made in God's image who don't? It's an important question. It's something that we should be asking ourselves as a community together. Are we, Wallace Church, a bubble? Or... Are we willing to enter into this sometimes awkward space of hanging out with people who don't share our beliefs? What it looks like to reach out to the lost is going to look different for every Christian, but it's going to look like something. Church is supposed to be doing it. So is this something that maybe we need to be challenged in the direction of today? I'll leave that for you to be thinking about, something for us as a church to be thinking about. Are we a church that is, is welcoming and uh, open to the, to the lost, or are we a bubble? So those are a few thoughts to think about as we ask what it means for us to be witnesses. But our third point, our mission reflects God's heart for the lost. And here's where we really come to the passage I read from today in Luke 15. It's a passage that's really about what God is doing. It also reminds me of what Jesus says. It's not even you talking, really. It's what the Holy Spirit is saying through you. And this passage in Luke is also all about God. Um, and that's where I want to leave us today, with God's heart for the lost and His mission to save. Because, you know, I think it would be really bad news if evangelism was really all up to us. Isn't it encouraging to look at Israel's story and see them fail, but God witnessed through them anyway? So often we lack the knowledge to know what to say, we lack the boldness to speak up, or we lack the meekness to speak gently, and we're often so keenly aware of how our sin does blot our testimony. 
But the witnessing that may happen through us is not something that comes from our own sufficiency. It's something that happens because God is at work seeking the lost. That's a consciousness that marked Jesus' own ministry. Why did Jesus tell these parables? The passage tells us it's because the religious leaders were upset with him. Why were the religious leaders upset with him? It's because he was welcoming tax collectors and sinners. He was inviting in the morally scandalous and eating with them. These are people the religious leaders thought should be canceled in modern parlance. Who do you think should be canceled? Be honest, there is someone, isn't there? Uh, So that so-and-so from work who totally has it coming? Okay, now imagine that you found out that Jesus went out to eat with that person. You know, roll into Waffle House and there's Jesus and that person sitting there eating. How would you feel? Would you be mad at Jesus? Don't be too flippant about this. I mean, these tax collectors, they did some bad stuff. Imagine how you would feel if you were the one getting your taxes collected. How does Jesus explain why he's spending time with them? He tells two stories that are about God's heart for the lost. In the first, he tells us about this man who has a hundred sheep. I mean, that's a lot of sheep, I guess. I I tried to do some rough math from Roman price lists to figure out, well, what's the value of a hundred sheep? And let's just say $50,000 in today's money. Debatable, but somewhere around there. That means if one sheep wanders off, that's $500 that went missing out there somewhere. That's not nothing. As shepherds at the time were devoted to their sheep, as Jesus says, nobody there would say, oh, forget the sheep. You'd go after it. And then there's this woman who has 10 silver coins. Okay, this is fun. A silver coin comes out to about $100. So she's got 10 Benjamins, and she loses a Benjamin. And that's her whole savings. Now, if you lost a $100 bill, you'd probably tear your place apart too. Have you ever lost something really important? You know, Jesus asks us to imagine that joy we feel when you find it. You know, you've been frantically tearing apart your place, and, and there it is. That's what happens in heaven when a lost sinner repents and comes to God. You see, to the religious leaders, these people were worthless. That's not how God sees them. It's not how the angels feel either. Rather, God rushes to seek the lost, and he and his angels rejoice when they're found. You know, our little piece in this story is that anyone who follows Jesus knows that they are that sheep. When Jesus mentions the 99 sheep who don't need any repentance, I think he's being ironic because he's already said everybody should repent. That's his message. The religious leaders, they don't think they need repentance, but they do. They just don't know it. I hope that we do know it. Everyone here who's put their faith in Jesus has this story God came to find them, and God rejoiced over them in finding them. So now we get to be his witnesses, but we're just playing a little part in the story. It's God who seeks and saves the lost. Out of his great love, the Father sent his Son to take on flesh and seek us out, and he sent his Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the gospel. The witness we're called to is actually one that Jesus has already fulfilled perfectly in himself. 
Um, Jesus is the Word of God. He's the one who reveals the Father. When we witness to God, it's not even so much as if we point directly to God. We point at Jesus, the God become man first. In Jesus, we see God made flesh, a God who, as truly man, pursues us even through death on the cross and into the grave to rescue us from the grip of death and Satan. And in doing so, Jesus reveals the heart of the Father. If you feel like you're one of the sinners today, if you feel like you're one of the people like the tax collectors who will get lumped into a category where people wonder, why would Jesus be interested in them? then you can know that God does not see you as worthless. How? You can look at Jesus. In Jesus, you see the Father's love for you. You see him coming after you. You see the joy he takes in saving you and saying, this one is mine. At the end of the day, what can any of us do better than just point at that? The famous quote about evangelism, it seems to really have been a guy named D.T. Niles, a pastor from Sri Lanka who actually said it, but the quote goes like this, evangelism is merely one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. Our witness is simply pointing to Jesus' witness, and Jesus' witness is a picture of God's love for us, the joy he has over us. So, as we go out, this week, into the world, into our various callings, let's remember where our hope comes from. Our good shepherd Jesus came to find the lost, and he's the one who's at work by his Spirit to bring all his lost sheep back into the fold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came after us and found us when we were lost. We thank you for this beautiful picture of the joy you have in us, that we can know that joy through Christ. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in that. And we pray that our knowledge of your grace for us would cause us to be excited in our witness to what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.